Welcome to Detour to Neverland, where you are the author of your own Disney story. There's a lot of satisfaction in developing ideas into realities. And you can find magic in your everyday life. If you do what you really want to do, you feel like you're playing. How can you write your first chapter today? Dreams are how we figure out where we want to go. Life is how we get there. I'm headed this way. We're your hosts, Brendan and Catherine. Welcome back to Detour to Neverland. Today is episode number 280, and we are doing another storytelling episode today about Dumbo the Flying Elephant. Before we get into the episode, I do want to mention our travel agent sponsor, Hannah Little with Creating Magic Vacations. If you want to go to Disney or anywhere else this summer, you can go to littlebitofdisney.com, and there there is a quick survey that you can fill out. If you know what you're going to do and what your dates are, you let her know that. And if you don't know, just tell her what you're interested in or tell you what you might possibly want to do, and she will set you up. She monitors all of the latest discounts for Disney and will make sure that she gets you the best deal possible. She is absolutely wonderful to work with. We've been working on her for some cruising and some Disneyland trips, and she is truly a pleasure to work with and to help plan your trip. You don't have to pay for any of her services because Disney actually pays for it along the way. So if you are interested in any of that, please go to littlebitofdisney.com, fill out that free quote, or you can hit the link down in our show notes. So today, like we mentioned, we are going to continue our storytelling series where the goal here is that we're going to look at the attraction Dumbo the Flying Elephant and we're going to look at the history, but we're also going to try to look at the ride itself and maybe pick apart different things that would enhance your next ride. The challenge is up for us. It is. It's very simple. We've done other simple rides before. Mad Tea Party comes to mind. And uh, the Death Wheel. But, you know, it's interesting to learn more about Dumbo. It's an old movie. It's one that I didn't know much about as far as the history or even the significance of the ride. So I think it's fun. So I think that's a good place to start our discussion, which is about the movie. So Dumbo was the fourth Walt Disney Pictures film that was released in 1941. And when we say film, full length animated feature, this was the shortest of anything that they had created before, and it's actually barely over an hour long. It's 64 minutes long of a movie. So if you haven't seen it in a while, it's a quick watch. You can go find it on Disney Plus really easily. And really, a lot of what drove Dumbo and the production of Dumbo was to recoup a lot of the losses that the company had from their second and third movies Pinocchio and Fantasia, respectfully. So nowadays, we do view Pinocchio and Fantasia as these classics. They really capture the early days of animation. But you have to really put ourselves into the late 30s and early 40s and understand what is going on. Walt Disney launched a pictures company at about the worst time in human history to do it, right before World War II starts. And so Pinocchio and Fantasia are both released during the war. They both don't do well. With Fantasia, there was a lot of issues as well where not even every movie theater was equipped to run it because I think it was something about they had an 
channel stereo system to Rand Fantasia and just not many theaters across the world had that capability. Pinocchio had issues as well getting off the ground. And then for whatever reason, Dumbo, right smack dab in the middle of World War II, was a hit. Who would have ever thunk it? I know. I mean, honestly, when you give me that lineup, Pinocchio, Fantasia, Dumbo, it's not exhilarating. Like, it's not something to make you super excited. I mean, for me, Pinocchio is a very creepy movie. I don't like it at all. But then Dumbo, to be honest, I never realized that it was so old. I don't think I would have pinned it at number four. I would have maybe pinned it at like number 12. And you I know that's like kind of random. 50s, early 60s? Yeah. But I just, you know, whenever I grew up and I would go over like early Disney movies with my dad, you know, quiz each other, I feel like it was always Snow White, Bambi. Pinocchio, I guess. But and that was it. It was never Dumbo was never mentioned. So to understand a little bit more about where the company and where Walt was at this point, out of those first movies, Dumbo had the smallest budget of all of them. Less than a million dollars to produce it. And it actually ended up bringing in one point three million dollars. Which if you converted that to today's money, it would be somewhere around twenty seven to thirty million dollars. Now, again, that's a little hard to think about because now we're talking about Frozen and Marvel and Star Wars movies. Who can hit the billion-dollar mark? But at that time, $1.3 million was a huge success for them, and they were both applauded at the box office and by critics because this won the 1941 Academy Award for the Best Original Score, and it was nominated for the Best Original Song for Baby Mine. Now... I don't know. Maybe you're different. I never really think about the music when I think about Dumbo. Do you? No, I don't either because it's such an interesting movie. You know, it makes me think about Wally, where Dumbo is the main character, but he doesn't speak. You know, like Wally doesn't. That's my big problem with Wally is that they don't speak, you know, until the end of the movie. Luckily, the supporting characters do. But maybe that's where the music makes up for some of that dialogue. Quite possibly. I mean, I always think about Baby Mine, and I guess this is maybe the point where we can also talk about the Tim Burton remake. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the elephant in the room, pun intended. <laughs> I am a Tim Burton fan. You are not. No. Mm-mm. Although you like Nightmare Before Christmas, correct? I do like Nightmare Before Christmas because you know what you're getting. I mean, I guess for all Tim Burton movies, you should know what you're getting. I do enjoy the first Alice in Wonderland movie, not the second one. And I enjoy a lot of his older stuff as well. Edward Scissorhands, Batman Returns, everything. Now, truthfully, I think this might be one of my top five least like movies ever was the Dumbo remake. Oh, that's very harsh. I mean, a lot of people have that same opinion. I feel like I went into watching the movie knowing that I wasn't going to enjoy it. So I was almost pleasantly surprised. Not that it was great by any means. But when I do think of the song now, Baby Mine, I hear it in Katy Perry's voice. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know. I feel like that's sad. 
But that's what is coming to mind right now. Every time we, you know, talk about the song, that's what I hear. Well, that's what kind of my, that's why I brought up the new movie was because that, to me, I didn't realize how big of an impact the music in Dumbo had on me until that first trailer of the new Dumbo came out and playing behind it, the soundtrack was the instrumental version of Baby Mine. And you saw Jumbo, Mrs. Jumbo putting her trunk out to comfort Dumbo. And I'm man, like that was a very impactful song and a very impactful scene from this movie that I've probably only seen a handful of times in my entire life. And then the other music that really stands out is the Casey Jr. song. And they only play it for like 20 seconds or something mm-hmm. in the actual movie. But now you hear that very often, especially in the parks, in Disneyland, of course, and in Walt Disney World, it's in some of those loops as well. But I don't know. That's kind of a staple of a lot of the really, really good Disney movies was how good is their soundtrack. But really, if you look at these first four, Snow White is okay. Fantasia is more of just, you know, instrumental music, of course, of scores. What? I'm kind of mad at you because you just said that Snow White's was only okay. There are lots of iconic songs from Snow White. Okay. It was great. Iconic. Thank you. Wonderful. Pinocchio, not really known for its music either. And then followed up with Dumbo. So When You Wish Upon a Star. Okay. I get you're right. It's all good. I mean, I think I think that just goes to show, like what your point is saying is that these classic movies are identifiable by their songs. You might not know anything about Dumbo, but you know when you hear a song that it's from Dumbo. You might not know much about Pinocchio, but when you hear those songs, you're going to know exactly what it's from. Or I guess I should say song. True. And same for today, Frozen. I mean, all that's one of the first things that we talk about after we watch a movie is, okay, well, I like this, this, and this. And... The music, like it's its its own category. I mean, that's very true. And I think that's kind of my, like I said at the beginning, that's my hard-hitting point is that both Casey Jr. and Baby of Mine are long-lasting songs that I think a lot of people would hear it and it would maybe trigger and help you remember some of those iconic scenes from otherwise a very, very short movie. So let's go back. Let's talk about the ride. So this ride appears in every castle style park around the world. It was an open day attraction for every park, but one, this is a good little trivia question. The only one that it wasn't there for opening day was actually Disneyland. It opened a month after Disneyland debuted in July after they had some delays from the prototypes and they weren't ready to open it on the grand opening. And what's funny about the delay and the prototypes is that it was the actual elephants. The elephants were too heavy. They're about 700 pounds and the arms that were supposed to lift them up could not lift them up. How funny is that? They were too heavy. That's a big problem. That would be a problem. I'm just picturing like on delivery day, the guy shows up, hey, got your... 10 elephants here. Where do you want them? And they're like, this won't work. What are you doing? (laughs) Do you think 
I don't know, you know, what goes into theme park preparation and everything, but I can almost see like all these Imagineers are standing there. They're excited. This is the moment the elephants are getting installed. You know, this has got to be one of those attractions where Walt was probably patting himself on the back because when you think about Disney World and rides that everyone can enjoy, Dumbo has got to make the top of that list as far as like family friendly, even though it spins, there's not a lot to it. Well, no height requirement, no lap sitting is available. So I just feel like to not have this on opening day, I bet some heads were rolling. There were probably some words said about these elephants. Probably so. So every version of this ride appears in Fantasyland except for two. Magic Kingdom is kind of a half point. It appears in Storybook Circus, which technically, if you look at the map, Storybook Circus is its it's part of Fantasyland. Now, I'm curious, do you view it that way? I always viewed it as separate because I just view it as this used to be Mickey's Toontown Fair, and now it's Storybook Circus. But I guess Magic Kingdom officially says that's part of Fantasyland, part of the Fantasyland expansion. I was going to say, because it doesn't have its own section on the park map, I feel like that's why I always lump it into Fantasyland. That's always been confusing for me because I viewed it as a separate land, but when you're riding the train, they say this is the Fantasyland stop. Mm -hmm. So I guess that makes sense. And then in Shanghai, their version is in the Gardens of Imagination. That sounds beautiful. I want to go there. Someday. All of the versions besides Magic Kingdoms spin counterclockwise. And it's not officially known why the Magic Kingdom version, when they redid it, they decided to spin it clockwise. But some people guess that it gave you a better view of Cinderella Castle and overlooking Fantasyland and Seven Dwarves Mine Train. Which I do like. I mean, I feel like you have to take that into consideration. Like, what is the view going to look like? So I can appreciate that. So let's talk about the story of this attraction. Even though it's short, it did actually go through some changes over time. So originally, instead of 16 elephants, there were actually only 10. And those 10 elephants were meant to represent the pink elephants from the elephants on parade scene, which is like the scene where it's kind of, it's a weird combination. It's definitely like a psychedelic. Is that the word you'd use? Well, they're drunk. Well, it's like a fever dream, but kind of drunk. What aren't there other scenes that kind of make you think this way? Or like, and like heffalumps and woozles. But on this one, they specifically they're drinking champagne. Like that's what causes this. Okay, well, so are they? So back me up to what's happening in the movie for people who are not familiar. Timothy Q. Mouse and Dumbo. Somehow get into a bottle of champagne and they become drunk. And this is what they see in their drunkenness. These pink elephants. And it's funny because this music, is this the music that they use? No, they use the Heffalump and Woozle song at the Halloween party, correct? Do they ever use this song for anything? I don't know how often Elephants on Parade is played in the parks, honestly. Because it almost feels like it would be scary, or like it could be scary for I mean, kids. it's a scary scene for Dumbo, yeah. So that's weird that they would make this attraction based off of that, don't you think? 
Because it gives you almost Snow White Scary Adventure vibes. Well, so I don't know if that's exactly what they were going for. More so than anything, it was that they didn't think they could have gray elephants because you wouldn't know who is Dumbo. Like, which one is Dumbo? Almost like who's on first. (laughs) Which one is Dumbo? So they decided, they thought originally it would be a better idea to paint them all pink and you would have basically one Dumbo and that was where kind of this idea and inception of having the one ride vehicle outside, not attached to the arms, which now we see as the photo opportunities. So you see it in Magic Kingdom. It's between the two carousels. Disneyland has one. Every park actually has one except for Disneyland Paris. But that was going to be the one gray one. That's Dumbo sitting right there. He's not attached to an arm. But the ones that you're actually riding, those are the pink elephants on parade. And the original name for the attraction was supposed to be that as well. It's supposed to be 10 pink elephants on parade. However, Walt saw it and he didn't like it. And that's how we ended up with gray elephants. Which is the better choice, I think, obviously. I don't know anybody who's really dissecting the story that much when they're there of, can all of these be Dumbo or, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I don't think people think into it as much. I mean, I think it's a, it was a nice thought for the ride to maybe have a little more substance. But in this case, I don't think it's necessary. The first ride vehicles also featured hinged flapping ears. And so basically right there where the ear connects to Dumbo's head, they could flap up and down. There was a hinge, a metal hinge, and they had that. And when they first installed all of them in the parks, they all had that capability, but they never turned it on. They never could quite get it right or get it to work the way that they wanted it to. So a few years later in 1963, they took those off and replaced them with just the cast ears of now it's one one piece of fiberglass. Do you think they would ever try to bring that back? No. It sounds cool, though. It Here's the reason why. Okay. Those ride vehicles are very small. And I thought about this when I was watching some videos on this and when we wrote it recently as well. If it's flapping up and down, a kid could easily put their finger in there and get it smashed. And I think it's a safety thing. Hmm. You'd have to make Dumbo a lot longer where you couldn't reach his head. But they're so short and stubby like Dumbo. I mean, you can reach really far up. You know, you can touch his eyes whenever you're riding if you lean forward. So that's why I don't think the ears will ever move. That is kind of a bummer. It would be a nice effect. And they definitely, I feel like, have the technological capabilities to do it now. But I guess I see your point. Safety is the number one concern here. So we mentioned the reimagining that took place in 2012 in Magic Kingdom. And that included a couple new things. So the first one, which was, to my family, groundbreaking news, a second carousel, which doubled the capacity. Was this earth shattering to you? No. To, I, to my family, it was a big deal when they announced that they were going to move it from its spot. Because do you remember where it used to be? Kind of right there in the center of everything, the focal point. Well, it was behind the carousel, though, right? Yes, but it was still 
to me, that's like right in the middle of the park. And then the uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea would have been just to the right of it, correct? If you're standing at the back of the castle. I think so, yeah. Okay. So everything, you know, was right there. They said they were going to move it to the back right corner and they were going to double it. I feel like we were shocked by that news. Uh, maybe it was just us. You seem pretty unfazed. I mean, I think, honestly, if I'm being honest, my family's reaction was probably was, do people really like it that much? Like, is it worth all that space? But that's just a family with two boys, probably. I guess we were those people. I have a lot of memories with Dumbo. I really do. So the other new addition that came with that 2012 reimagining was this new interactive queue. So if you're not familiar with it, basically what happens is you stand in the standby queue for just a few moments. Once you reach the indoor portion, you're given a pager that then holds your place in line. And while you are waiting, the kids and adults, if they'd like to, can explore this playground themed to a circus. And I wanted to mention just a couple of things that are inside of this playground that are pretty cool. They do have the fire, the burning building scene, just like from the movie, both the Tim Burton movie and the regular version. The outside of it is set up like an old school circus would be with like the wooden benches that most of the time that's just what the parents sit on Mm -hmm. throughout. But, you know, it's a lot of climbing and a lot of ladders, but it is pretty cool to see them incorporate things from the movie. And then once... Your pager goes off. You're then able to get back into the standby line where then you should just have to wait like five or 10 minutes until you're able to get on. Now, the second carousel, I do think this is an interesting thing that they did. Basically, one carousel is completely dedicated to fast pass and the other is completely standby. And so there's not a mix and mingling that happens, no merge point or anything like that. Well, and I feel like this interactive queue is a pretty big deal because this has got to be one of the first times that we saw Disney start to move in this direction. Because if you think about 2012, after that, I mean, we have lots of interactive queues now. I mean, on different scales. So a lot of them aren't quite to this level, but we see it in the Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, Haunted Mansion, to a certain extent, when you walk through the the graveyard, I guess that little back portion, um, even in Space Mountain, they put the games and everything there. Well, I feel like you're missing the big one. What's the big one? Peter Pan. Oh my gosh, yes, Peter Pan. I mean, honestly, there's so many. I think Peter Pan is the biggest parallel of what you can see of how they can take a classic attraction that we love Peter Pan. But again, there's not a lot to it. It's very, very short. It's, you know, a retelling of the movie. Peter Pan's flight is not a groundbreaking, you know, anymore. But this addition of the interactive queue really takes it to another level. And I think it enhances the ride so much more. So I think since this was such a success at... Dumbo the Flying Elephant, that paved the way for them to do this in a lot of other areas as well. Well, and I think, you know, that goes to show that they were also really looking at, like, guest experience. They must have started to recognize that these parents and these kids 
waiting in lines are probably one of the worst parts of going to Disney World. So they were starting to make that experience more enjoyable. And then it's carried over into, you know, even the newer attractions that we see now where it's not just a line with these barricades, but you're being put into a story or you're being shown something new or they're, you know, engaging you while you stand there at least. So then once your pager is called, you ride Dumbo and there's really not much more to the story at that point. It is a flat ride carousel spinning ride that you see at every single amusement park across the world and you're riding in Dumbo. Timothy Q. Mouse is up on the top on a hot air balloon. He used to be on a disco ball, right? In some versions. That's what they said. I'm not sure about the Magic Kingdom version or if that was just the Disneyland version, but I'll take their word for it. And that's really it as far as the story. I mean, there's it's circus music that is playing and just a couple of other little nods that you can pick up along the way about the water shooting higher and lower based on, you know, what portion of the ride you're in. It's a 90 second spin at the very end. You all go up in unison and fly around. It's, it's just a classic attraction. There's, there's not much more to it as far as story but there's a couple of conversations that I want to have about this that I think are worthwhile. Specifically to the Magic Kingdom version, I think it is important to understand the relationship between Florida and the circus. And I do have to thank our friends Jackie and Sean from Monorail Radio for pointing a lot of this out because I wasn't aware of this. But Dumbo itself, the animated feature, is actually set in Florida. Did you realize that? No, this is fascinating. Do tell. And so a lot of this is stemmed from the Ringling Brothers, were a Florida-based company in Sarasota, actually. And so Jumbo, Mrs. Jumbo was actually named after a famous elephant that they had traveling with them in the Ringling Brothers circus. There's, you know, still in Sarasota, there's all kinds of nods to the circus. Now, that is a... That's pretty much a dead industry at this point, I think, because of animal rights and a plethora of other things. You don't see many circuses going on, but you have to also think about when Walt was growing up, probably a circus would have been like the highlight of a lot of kids' years of when the circus comes to town. It reminds me of when you were living in Kansas, when the rodeo would come to town, that was your biggest thing. It true. I have some good memories with the rodeo. We would go. Uh, so this is a little background on on me, but we would go wait in line at the boot. I don't think it was a boot barn. That would have been too high class. But we'd go to the store. We would wait in lines to meet the rodeo queens. We'd have their pictures. We'd get their autographs. We'd meet the clowns. We'd go every night and watch. All the, everything there was to it, I don't know. They rode the horses, they wrangled the cows. It was a good time. For a whole week we did that. So now living in Florida, I feel like I'm qualified to say, like, there's probably nothing more Florida than a circus. Would you agree with that? Like, it screams Florida man all over it. (laughs) As far as, like, having... We have this 
tiger. Let's yeah. show you how he balances on this beach ball. It's like some real Carol Baskin type stuff. Like it, it truly is. Yeah. It's honestly so surprising that Tiger King is not from Florida as well. Hey, but. we have one. We don't need two. But anyway, I do think there's a special little connection there about the history of the circus and as it ties into Florida history as well. We need to go down to Sarasota and see a lot. They have like a little museum, I think, and all kinds of stuff. That would be fun. The other thing that I think is interesting, when you put yourself into Walt's shoes, whenever he's opening Disneyland... And he's starting this preparation in the mid to late 40s into the 50s. He really didn't have a lot of movies or characters to choose from. So if we cap it at 1953, maybe mid-1953, Disneyland opens in July of 1955. If you say, kind of, you have to have all the boxes checked two years in advance so that you can get everything built the way that you want it to, put everything and wrap it up with a bow and get it ready for the grand opening. I guess we know they weren't actually ready for the grand opening, but that's a completely different story. I wanted to point out just here are the titles of movies that he would have had to choose from. I'm going to tell you the title, the year that it came out, and then whether or not it got an attraction in Disneyland. And I think you'll see he didn't have a lot. So first was Snow White, 1937. Of course, that got an attraction Pinocchio, 1940. It didn't get a titled attraction. Pinocchio's Daring Journey didn't come until the 80s, but there was lots of mentions and uh, references to it in the Storybook Land Canal Boats. Fantasia, 1940. Did not get anything in Disneyland, probably because it was a flop at that point in time. It gained traction after years and years later. The Reluctant Dragon, 1941, that doesn't really count because it was more just a tour of their studios, not really a movie. Then Dumbo, 1941, got two attractions, actually, that we haven't even talked about the other one. Of course, got Dumbo the Flying Elephant, and then Casey Jr. Circus Train was an opening day attraction at Disneyland as well. And side note, I think that has got to be the cutest attraction on the planet. We didn't even ride it last time. But it's adorable. You think we're too big? Probably. All right, after that, we got Bambi in 1942. It did not get an attraction. Again, that was a box office flop. I'm going to come back to that. Okay. Saludos, Amigos, and the Three Caballeros come out in 1942 and 1944. They didn't get anything. Victory through air power. I had honestly never even heard of that. Released in 1943. Song of the South, 1946. We know its problems and how later it got into Splash Mountain. Fun and Fancy Free in 1947. Melody Time, 1948. The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, 1949. That got an opening day attraction. Cinderella, 1950. Now that's a surprising one to me that it didn't get one for the opening of Disneyland. It is. I wonder if maybe there just wasn't like a great idea for how to portray that. You know, maybe with the emotions and the things that Walt wanted, maybe it just didn't fit. Alice in Wonderland, 1951, it got an attraction with the Mad Tea Party. And then Peter Pan, 1953, it got an attraction. Now talk about having some faith that Peter Pan was going to be a hit to release it in 1953 and then have a ride built for it by 1955. 
was pretty impressive, I think. But something I never realized before until I made this list was that Sleeping Beauty came out after Disneyland was open. Now, maybe you knew that at home, but to me, that is insane. Sleeping Beauty came out in 1959, so he built this castle based on this movie that he was working on, again, just banking that it was going to be a hit and that people would get the reference. I guess my question is, was it always labeled, was it always called Sleeping Beauty Castle? Or when the park first opened, was it just, here is a castle? I think it was that. Now, I don't know officially, and we'd have to look at an opening day map. It was years later where they added the walkthrough that told the story of Sleeping Beauty, Mm -hmm. where Jiminy Cricket was in there telling the story of it. And yeah, so that's probably true. And then they maybe did a little bit of retrofitting to Sleeping Beauty. But I always thought that was so interesting. So let's back it up. Let's talk about Cinderella real quick and talk about Fantasyland as a whole. We talked about whenever Fantasyland first opened, that Walt was going for these different emotions in all of the different rides that he was building. Fun, fear, what was the third one? Fantasy? Yeah, or adventure, something like that. So we got fun with Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, fear with Snow White's Scare Adventure, and then fantasy with Peter Pan. So maybe that's the reason why Cinderella didn't fit in at that point in time. Yeah, I mean, that's what I would predict. And I'm sure there was only so much room and so much time. Something had to get the axe. To me, it should have been Mr. Toad, but I'm no expert. No one asked me. Well, you also weren't around in 1955. I'm sure if I was, no one would have asked me. But really, he only had about a dozen or so viable options for what to base some of these attractions around. And of course, he had to balance some intellectual property, some non-intellectual property. And I think with the list that he had, that's a pretty impressive list that he was able to build. I mean, he banked on Peter Pan hard, and thankfully it came through for him. But I also feel like maybe the idea was strong enough. You know, we did talk about when we did our episode on Peter Pan that the way that those boats moved and just the perspective that they were able to give you was like groundbreaking. It was so different and so unique that... It's almost like, okay, Peter Pan could have been terrible as a movie, but people probably would have still been interested because the ride was just so cool. Which is fair. So really the only two that I think you can make an argument for that they probably should have gotten rides were Bambi, which when it first released did not do well. It became kind of a classic much, much later on in its shelf life. And then Cinderella, which we already talked about. They kind of already had the fantasy with Peter Pan, and then they also had princess representation with Snow White. Let me ask you this, Brendan. What kind of Bambi ride could they have possibly done? A hunting game. (laughs) (laughs) No. Probably not, no. Too soon? Too soon, yeah. I don't think that's like the warm... Fuzzy feeling. Like the Frontierland shooting game that couldn't have been Bambi themed? 
Probably not. Talk about something that you walk by a million times and you always forget is there. But yeah. Yeah, we never even consider stopping. I've never done it. Not a single time. Well, maybe we should. Well, it's not open right now. When it opens, we should. I mean, do you think he made the correct choices out of that list? I think he did. I mean, I think, like you said, there wasn't a ton to choose from. Obviously, you know, he had a vision and he kind of knew what he was going for. And obviously, like we just mentioned, with Bambi, you didn't really miss out on anything. And with Cinderella, it probably would have been another retelling. Maybe it just didn't stand out as being, you know, like spectacular enough. That, and I think that's just kind of all it comes down to. Yeah. So, I mean, I think all, can, all things considered, he did a great job, obviously. Something worked. <laughs> obviously. Up to this point. And I think that's kind of my biggest point in this episode and talking about Dumbo is that it's very simple, but it's a classic attraction. Almost every single person who has been going to Disney, you know, just a few times or a lot of times, almost every single person rides Dumbo. It's just one of those things. It's like it's a small world. You you just have to do it. Whether you want to or you don't want to, it's just one of those boxes that you have to check when you're visiting either any of the parks, any of the castle parks along the way. And I think pairing that with understanding how significant Dumbo was to the company at that point in time, where the two movies right before it had flopped, they got their budget just slashed and cut up. They released their shortest film up to that point in the middle of a world war. And somehow Dumbo was able to succeed. And I think there's an interesting question if you can say, you know, is Dumbo one of the most important movies ever released? Because if it went bad and they lost money, you know, could they have recovered from three straight flops, which would have become four straight flops after Bambi? Yeah, and then, you know, even I'm still looking at this list. You even still have to wonder, okay, after Dumbo, so if Dumbo was considered a success, like how many years after Dumbo did it take for them to get another big hit? Because even after that, it seems like until you get to the 50s, you know, that's a 10-year time period of, I don't know what they were doing or how they squeaked by which is kind of crazy to think about. Well, they opened a theme park. And I think that helped them a lot. I mean, and then they were still doing some of their TV spots and other animated stuff with Mickey. But yeah, in the movie, in the box office, I think the next one that you could consider a roaring success would have been Cinderella in 1950. So that's a nine-year gap where there really wasn't a really notable animated feature coming out of there. Mm-hmm. And so Dumbo had to carry them for quite some time. Now, I think it's sort of like picking your favorite child. And it's, you know, I kind of view it as people ask us all the time, what's your favorite park or what's your favorite ride? Like it changes all the time. But at one point in time, Walt did say that Dumbo was his favorite movie. Do you believe that? I've also heard that about Bambi. What? I've never heard that about Bambi. You haven't? I don't think so. 
Well, I don't know. Maybe I made it up. No, I mean, I believe you. Uh, I would believe it. Especially if, I mean, of all people, Walt would have known how important it was, you know, and that it did well. So I'm sure he was proud of it. So I'm sure that played a part in it. And I don't know. Maybe he just really connected with it. So what's the one thing that you're going to keep in mind next time you ride Dumbo that you think will make it better? I'm going to imagine what it would have been like with pink elephants. If we were, if we were riding pink elephants on parade, they would have had to play the music. That's why they don't sell alcohol in the park. (laughs) Because it, it, he can't back it up. Yeah. I think it would have been a very different experience. So I think it'll be fun to think about that. What about you? I mean, I think it's just kind of what I just said about that Dumbo. It's it's not one of my favorite movies, probably not even top 20, if I'm being honest, in Disney animated films. However, it was so significant. And I think that shows through in that it got picked for two different attractions for the opening of Disneyland. Nobody else could say that. But Dumbo could. And so I think it really was a huge pivotal moment for the company. And if it didn't, if it wasn't a success, who knows, you know, what would have happened. So I guess with that, we got to leave it there. Something to ponder on. If all of this talk about Dumbo has you wanting to get back to the parks, be sure to hit up our friend Hannah Little with Creating Magic Vacations. You can find her at littlebitofdisney.com. There, fill out the free quote and she will be with in touch with you very, very soon. It's honestly kind of crazy how quickly she'll get back to you whenever you fill that out <laughs> with the, getting you the information that you will need to move forward. And of course, her services are always free and a great ally to have on your side to make sure that you book the best trip possible. So again, that's a little bit of Disney.com or hit the link down in our show notes. And of course, if you enjoyed this episode, we would love an iTunes review. It is absolutely the best way to help the podcast grow. We really, really appreciate them. They make our day. So hope you all have a wonderful weekend, and we will chat with you on Monday. Thank you for listening to Detour to Neverland. Make sure you subscribe and leave us an iTunes review if you enjoyed the show. Between episodes, you can find us on Instagram at Detour to Neverland or visit DetourToNeverland.com. We appreciate you letting us be part of your day. See you real soon.